You can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. One of the reasons um, I'm just having you stand as we hear the word read is actually every, pretty much every time in Scripture when the word is read, the people have stood. Uh, we can see this in the book of Ezra. We could show you multiple other places that the people stood because we stand for, we stand for the flag We'll stand for many things, and we, what we're doing when we're standing is we're showing honor. We're showing honor. We're, we're praising, praising and honoring what we're reading. So let's, let's do that as we hear the word read. This is the word of the Lord. Romans 3, starting in verse 19, I'm going to read down to verse 26. This is the word of the Lord. Now we know that whatever the law it says, it speaks to those who are under the law, So that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, your word is a sure and steady anchor. We just sang it, standing on the promises standing on your promises. And Lord, this is like the high watermark of the promises we see in Scripture. Lord, as we see it today, I pray by, by your Spirit, for your glory, would you grant us the faith to believe it. Help us to live in light of what we're reading today, what we're hearing from your Word. May we worship you as we hear your Word preached for your glory. Would you anoint my lips now that we would hear your word spoken. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're continuing in a series called uh, Reformation Matters. And today we're encountering faith alone. And what do we mean by faith alone? Okay. Now, I, I showed you the first week that I, there's one simple thing this ser- that's binding this series together, and it's this. If you, uh, you can go to the next slide, Blake. It should be according to Scripture alone, which is what we saw the first week and the second week. We are saved by grace alone, which is what we saw the second in the thir- third and fourth week. And now today we're through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Okay, So we're just considering those, what's called the five solas, or the five onlys, or alones, of the Reformation. Uh, but today, I want you to see, if you're taking notes, just see this at the top. By, through faith alone, this is what we mean. 
The sinners are declared righteous with the alien righteousness of Christ accomplished in the death of Christ. And, and before we start, I mean, we, have to, we have to begin where Scripture begins. And, and, and the way Scripture talks is really embodied. There's, there's um, several theologians that have talked about Romans 3. They say that this passage, really, that we're looking at today, is the center of the whole Bible. It's the center because it's the central message that all of Scripture is driving toward. And we need to see the first, but before we get to the good news, we need to see just how desperately the bad news is. And it's this, that the declaration of people is the declaration as guilty. The declaration as guilty. And it's the role of the law. I want you to picture, as you're reading Romans 3, it's helpful to picture a very clear divine courtroom. And picture in this courtroom, you have God, who's the judge, and you have us who's sitting up in the, in, in the, in the front bench, who's on trial. Now, notice what the law, and when I say the law, what we mean by the law here is the whole Old Testament. So, when we think about the Ten Commandments, if, someone, if you read the Ten Commandments to someone, that's actually not good news for them. Because what all that the Ten Commandments would tell them is that you're a sinner. You are desperately in need. Now, notice what he says in verse 19. Now, that's not just the Ten Commandments. That's all of the law. This is what it shows us. He says, now we know that whatever the law it says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So I want you to see three things about the law. What does the law do? Here's what the law does first. The law silences everyone. And I have there entitled also, Self-Justification Ceased. Notice what he says there in verse 19 again. Now we know that whatever the law says... It speaks to those who are under it, okay? So that, here's the purpose of the law, every mouth may be stopped. Now, the problem with humanity, part of the problem, and we see this actually all the time. I'm going to say something that's very probably self-evident to you, that we are whiners, and we're complainers. In our whining and in our complaining, I don't know if you've ever stopped to like listen to the way we whine and the way we complain, But what it shows at its core is that all of us are very much self-righteous. Like the way the Bible even pictures humanity is not in some like, yes, yes, they're rebellious, but even the rebels are self-righteous. Do this sometime. Go and just read the Ten Commandments to someone and see what they would say. If you've ever lusted in your heart, you've committed adultery. If you've ever hated someone in your heart, you've killed them. What does that do to us? What it's meant to do to us is it's meant to say, stop all of the self-justification. Anytime you tell someone, you're wrong, or they immediately, what do we immediately do? No, but you don't understand. Look, look, I'm different. My situation, it's, you just don't understand. So picture, here we're in this courtroom, and all of the world is on the stand. And all that they're saying is, God, you don't understand. You don't quite understand. My situation's a little different. You don't understand. It's not me. You're talking about somebody else. 
And he says the law, actually what it does is it makes everyone's mouth cease. So, so let me give you an example. So say a Muslim, okay? Take a Muslim. Or, or take even a Buddhist. It is not as if people can choose to not be self-righteous. And by self-righteous, what I mean is they're choosing to justify themselves with something. And the thing about a Christian is a Christian's righteousness doesn't come from self. That a Christian's righteousness, we're the only people on earth that cannot be self-righteous. Because being self-righteous, so a Muslim, they believe they're right. They believe what they're saying is correct. And in that belief, they're showing some form of self-righteousness. So it's, it's impossible to not declare that we are right in some way. Even saying there is no truth is a declaration of righteousness in some way. And the law reveals what is expected, demanded, and necessary to be holy. It also reveals how far short we fall. The law brings knowledge of sin, but it does not bring salvation. The law brings condemnation about our condition. The law condemns us. So picture the proverbial courtroom again. You know what the law's role is? It's to stand there and show us just how wrong we are. So that every little self-justification, well, you don't understand my situation, you don't know what my background is, the law says to all of it, shh, no more complaining. And the gavel in the courtroom falls. Guilty, guilty, guilty. I love what... One commentator says, he says, the law is God's means of grace for people to own up to their guilt and hear God's message instead of their own self-justifying whining and protest. When mankind realizes that every self-justifying word will be silenced, every loudmouth boast will be hushed, Every form of self-promotion falls silent because the law condemns it. And if you're sitting there and you're like, man, this is really bleak. Yes. Good. Good. There's hope for you. Here's the other piece we need to see. The law silences everybody. The law also justifies nobody. We get real worked up in America about the Ten Commandments a lot. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but the Ten Commandments can show a person that they're a sinner, but the Ten Commandments cannot show them that they're righteous. They cannot show a person what they need to be right with God. Now, it it declares you're wrong. It shows us all the places we're wrong. The works of the law do not produce right standing with God. The right standing we need before God cannot come through the law because through the law comes knowledge of sin. Here's the last piece. The law exposes sin. You know, and this is so true. This is almost at some level self-evident. If I put a sign on this door that said, do not enter, no one go through this door, what would the natural human heart do? I mean, assuming like I'm not standing here, what door would we go through? I think this would be the only door people would enter through. Like, because, and I think the reason, you all know this, if, if there's a sign or a speed limit sign, what's immediately the, the fleshly desire? 
well, I just need to go just a few more miles over, isn't it? Or, or if a sign says, do not enter this way, what do we think? My son does this all the time. He's three years old. No one ever taught him to say this. Why, Daddy? Why? Why do I need to listen to you? Why? 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 The law exposes sin. We have rules around our house. Now, my son was just as sinful before the rules existed. And he's just as sinful after the rules. He breaks them. But the law rules. What they show is we are sinners. I love Pilgrim's Progress. If you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress, there's a, there's a scene in Pilgrim's Pro- Progress where the interpreter is showing Pilgrim, he's show, or Pilgrim, goodness, he's showing Christian on his journey some, some truth. And he gives him a room, he takes him into a room that's really dirty. And he takes him to that room, and there's a woman that he refers to as the law. And she comes in, and this is all like, like analogy, and, um, and he says, she comes in and she stirs up the room. Now, if you've ever been in a room that's really dirty, and you try to sweep it, what happens? It gets really, like, dusty, and it gets really, like, listen to what he says. This is to show you that the law, instead of cleansing the heart from sin, does in fact arouse sin, giving greater strength to it and causing it to flourish in the soul. The law both manifests or makes clear and forbids sin, but it has no power to subdue it. Picture that. So here's a woman, she's walking in a room, a dirty room, and she's sweeping, and the room is just filled up with, with dirt. Now, was the dirt there before she swept? Uh, yeah. But what the law does is it comes in, it actually shows us just how sinful we are. The law was never meant to save. This is why you can have, it's, it's actually entirely possible that a Muslim could be a better person than I am. I want to say this out loud, and this is, this is very true. We met Muslims in Dearborn. They were the kindest people I've ever worked with. I've actually worked with a lot of Christians who are not as kind as they are. Now, but that, that's a problem in other ways, but it's not, I want you to, I want to, I want you to realize that it's very possible for a person to be really, really good and that not save them at all. The law was never meant to save. Its purpose was to reveal what was already there. And then we hear words like this from Jesus. People always quote Jesus, but they never quote the parts they don't like from Jesus. You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. We love quoting the parts of Jesus, love your neighbor, love your, love your enemy, love this. You must be perfect, he says. And that, that verse always really bothered me, because here we sit in the courtroom, mouth closed, knowing just how sinful we are. The gavel throws, guilty, 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 guilty. And I will say, apart from what I'm about to say, that the devil uses the law in us to condemn us. He can point to the law and point to people and say, look how sinful they are. But this is not the the story of the Bible. The, The story of the Bible is only part of the story. So the declaration as guilty is only part of the story. We need to also see the declaration as righteous. The declaration as righteous, which is justification by faith. Now, in the law, we have been declared guilty. But in Jesus Christ, 
we are declared righteous. We have a term that I'm going to use, and you're going to hear a lot, and it was a very big term that came up in, in the Reformation, which is this term, justification. Now, justification is the declaration of sinners that they are counted righteous in Christ by faith. Okay, so we're going to deal with that a little bit. Uh, notice there in verse 21 what he says. So he says in verse 19 and 20, or actually just jump to verse 20. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now he's meant to, in that moment, just stop all the people who are trying to, to quibble and quabble with him. But then verse 21, he says, but now, but now, the righteousness of God has been manifested or made clear apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Now notice even in verse 1, that is, that is the strongest way he could say this. But now, as opposed to what it was before. It's independent of the law. The righteousness of God does not come from the law. Rather, it, the law points to it. So God's promise through the law and the prophets So the law and the prophets, actually the Old Testament, even the Ten Commandments, let's just take them for instance. The Ten Commandments are really important because they point to someone better. The Ten Commandments are very, very critical because they show us that there's there's necessity of holiness. There's a necessity of perfection. But he says again, but now the righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God has become clear to all, not through the law, but independent of it. Now, the law and the prophets, they point to the righteousness of God, but they don't make a person righteous. So if you bring somebody and you say, maybe, maybe they reject the Ten Commandments, and you say, oh, we, we shouldn't have the Ten Commandments outside our, 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 our courthouses. We hear this a lot. We, we, this is a common argument. One of the main reasons I would argue they hate having the Ten Commandments outside the courthouses, you know why? Because it condemns them. Because it shows them there's a standard. Makes sense. But it doesn't bring them hope. We need to realize this. We can have the Ten Commandments sitting outside courthouses all we want, and that doesn't bring hope. We can tell people, follow God, trust Jesus. Or, now, trust Jesus is a little different. Follow God, seek God. But we need to first see that God has sought us in the gospel. So I want you to see that God's righteousness is an alien righteousness. I love that word alien. Not because it's some weird like guy with his hair all spiked up like aliens. That's not what we're talking about. We're saying it's an alien righteousness, meaning it's outside of us. It's a righteousness that doesn't depend on us. I want you to hear that one more time. It's a righteousness that does not depend on us. So what is faith then? What is faith? I think one theologian very helpfully says, faith is a firm and certain knowledge of God's benevolence toward us, founded upon the truth of the freely given promise in Christ, both revealed to our minds and sealed upon our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Everyone, everyone that is, has sinned and broken God's righteous demands, revealed in the law and the prophets. 
But we can't stop there. It has been freely declared. People are freely declared as righteous as a gift in Jesus Christ. It is through faith that Paul expresses here. It's not some hopeful expectation in some weird general sense. We're saying, by faith, we're clinging to the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 10.13 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Our faith has an object who is Jesus. Now, during the Reformation, this was hotly debated. The reason why I say Reformation matters is because we, we still deal with Reformation issues. There's a, there's a Catholic church even on our road, okay? This, this, is not, this is not an all over and done with debate. Now, the Catholic church really got two categories mixed up in the Reformation. They thought that justification and what we call justification and sanctification as the same thing. So, so in the Catholic system, what you have is we are justified progressively. So you keep coming to Mass, and you keep doing all these things, and you come, and Jesus is, Jesus is crucifixion. It just keeps happening, and you're progressively justified. But in the Reformation, it came about that, that that's actually not what the Bible says. That's actually not what the Bible says at all. Notice what he says again in verse 21 and 22. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested where? Apart from the law and the prophets. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God, that is God's righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. Now is that something that happens progressively? No, 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 no. Faith is, what hap- faith is actually what happens, Luther would go on to say, you believe, or he goes on to say, through faith in Christ, therefore, Christ's righteousness becomes our righteousness, and all that he has becomes ours. All that he has becomes ours. So where does faith come from? And we could spend a long time on faith, but I just want to touch it real quick. Faith, as Romans 10 says, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. Okay, so faith is something that isn't even something we like drum up. Faith is actually something that comes to us from the Word of God, through the Word of God. And faith requires that we cling to something. Think about it like this. Faith, repentance in faith, is like a man who's holding a ginormous boulder. I've used this example before. And repentance is him setting down the boulder, and in order for him to be saved, he needs to cling to something else. That's what we mean by faith. Now, the question is, how much or, or does our faith then depend on us? And the answer is no. The Bible's very clear declaration is that we are actually declared righteous, even though we're still sinners. So we're apprehending Christ. Now, we could talk more on this. We could probably spend another week or two, but I just want to mention this as well. So what you're saying, because I know we all interact with people who say this, well, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I trust Jesus. I actually don't meet people in Kaiser. Can I just say, I actually don't meet people in Kaiser who say, I've never trusted Jesus. So 99% of the people around us would say, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. What do we say to them? Well, if I spend another week, this is what I'd want to talk about. But we, the reformers used to say this all the time. We, we talk about this declared righteous, we're declared righteous even though we're sinners. And then they would say, well, yeah, I believe in Jesus, so therefore I'm righteous. And this is what they would say. 
we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Okay? So to say it, to say it like this, it's we're saved by faith alone. Christ credits us righteous in his blood, but that credit, like that crediting, this is why the Catholic Church got it confused, because then they would say they get it all mixed up, justification and sanctification. The justification work is not something we see immediately, but sanctification then is the working out of that obedience. James 2 talks about this just as much. It talks about sanctification. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe. So there's a way that we can have faith that's actually like the demons. So we can have a demon kind of faith. And that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about a faith that truly justifies. Okay, so I want us to see this is the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel, in Christ. But I want us to see also the means of our justification. So jump down to verse 22. He says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And then he says, there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul says there's no differentiation in God's mind. The Jew and the Gentile both are dead in their sins. The reason is grounded in the fact that all have sinned or missed the mark in which all humanity has missed the standard and fallen short of the glory of God, referring to the fact that we're fallen in our nature, just like Adam since the Garden of Eden. We are no longer in a glorified because eternal life has been lost. So I want us to note so the means of our justification. I want to clarify something. Our faith is the vehicle of salvation, not the reason for it. This is very important. Our faith is the vehicle of salvation, not the reason for it. So we are justified. Now notice what he says again. So he says, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, just like he said in verses 19 and 20. But then he says, And are justified, that is declared righteous, by his grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I want to talk about a cycle that I've observed, I think in our community as well as in the church at large. And here's what the cycle kind of looks like. People, people come into the church, and sometimes they're young when they come into the church, but, and they come in, and, and they're raised up, and, and we, we do some baptism for them. They never really knew what they believed. And then what happens, and we've seen this happen, you've heard all the news outlets that cover this, then young people, they get a little older, and what do they do? They abandon their faith. Don't they? Have you heard this? Maybe you haven't seen this cycle. And people think, if I just had more faith, if these kids just had more faith, then they would be okay. If you just have more faith, then you won't be sick. If you just have more faith, then you'll be, then you'll be healed. Or they think that if they just hate their sin enough, then they'll be Christians. This is often seen when, we, when you ask people if they're a Christian, and they say, I'm trying to be. Ask somebody at Walmart today if they're a Christian. And I guarantee you, the common answer I hear a lot is, I'm trying. The Christian doesn't try to be a Christian. 
The Christian doesn't try to be a Christian. And what I mean by that is a Christian is one who's apprehended and been declared righteous by God. And I think the problem, the problem of this cycle, part of the cycle, is actually what we keep telling people is get rid of your sin. Look at your sin and get rid of your sin. Get, get, get the sin out of here. And we want them to pursue holiness, which is really important. But we never ground them in the gospel. The unmerited, unearned righteousness that God gives us. Let me give you an example from Jesus' own lips. Luke 18, 19, 9 through 14. He also told them this parable to some who, there it is again, trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. I think this parable actually is a good example of the American church. It really is. Because then he goes on and he says, two men went up into the temple, then Jesus tells a parable. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even tax collectors. I fast twice a week. I give all that I get. Hear that. That man has a lot to be proud of. He's done so much. What does Jesus say of him? Then he shows an example. He compares him to the tax collector. And the tax collector, standing far off, wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And this is a good example because here's the problem. The, The first guy, he had a lot. He could say, well, I'm not like that guy. I'm not like this guy. And what he's doing is he's justifying the standard. He's changing the standard. He's not looking at God's standard. What he's doing is he's saying, look at that guy. I'm not quite like him. And we're all looking at each other and judging each other. Well, I'm not as bad as that one. Does that get us to heaven? No, no. He says, I tell you, this man, referring to the tax collector, went down to his house justified. That is declared righteous rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Our faith is the vehicle of salvation. It is not the reason for it. The reason for our salvation is what? The righteousness of Christ, credited to sinners. Because what's demanded is perfection. So our faith is the vehicle of salvation, not the reason for it. I want you to see also that our faith does not save, but the object of our faith saves. And this seems like a small distinction. You're probably like, man, Daniel, okay, you're just like in the weeds. This, is this really that important? Yes, it's that important. Here's why. If you think your faith saves, then who does it depend on? You. If your faith saves then who's it dependent upon? You. You get in a struggle, you get in a dip, you get in depression for a long season, what happens to you? Am I really a Christian? I don't know. I'm, I'm wondering, and we wander around lacking assurance. You know why? Because the object of our faith saves us. It's not us that saves. It's not even our faith that saves. It's the object of our faith that saves. Notice what he says again in verse 24 and are justified, declared righteous by His grace as a gift. Through what? Not through faith. Through the redemption 
that is in Christ Jesus. We are justified or declared righteous as a gift. The declaration of righteousness pronounced over us is through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. So remember that Pilgrim's Progress illustration. Here's the woman dusting up the room, dusting up, sweeping up the room. All that's coming up, it's called the law, making the room all dusty. But then the interpreter says there's another woman who comes in. And she walks in the room, and what does she do? She sprinkles water. And you know, if you've ever cleaned a dusty room like that, what happens when you, dust, when you, when you sprinkle water upon it? Well, it doesn't get dusty anymore, does it? And he says, this woman, the second woman, is called grace. And when the grace of the gospel has been spread upon us, that is when we're able to be cleansed. That is the only way that room can be cleansed. The law only stirs us up to sin. I want you to think about, for example, I want to give you just one example of this in Scripture. And actually, the reformers, they always referred to this, because this was a great example. It's the quintessential example. It's the thief on the cross. Did the thief on the cross ever get down? So I'm going to give you an example. There are people who say, you need to be baptized to be saved. Did the thief on the cross get down from the cross and be baptized? No. Okay. But Jesus said to him, listen to what he says. Luke 23, 39 through 43. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we're receiving the due reward of our deed, but this man has done nothing wrong. Listen to what he says to him. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And then Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. He doesn't say get down. He doesn't say go, go feed the poor a little bit. He doesn't say anything else. He says today you'll be with me. I love Alistair Begg. Alistair Begg has a really famous sermon on this. And he said, how weird it must have been for the, for the thief on the cross to get to heaven. Because he gets there and he's like, he's like, why are you here? And he literally says, you know what he says? The guy in the middle told me to come. You know, that's it for me and you. Do you know that's it for me and you? That's all me, any of us can ever say is the guy in the middle told me to come. That's it. There isn't anything else. Romans 5, 6 through 10. This isn't just one place in Scripture. For while we were still weak, notice that very clearly, even in the midst of our weakness, at the right time, Christ died for who? The ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've been declared righteous or justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. And he picks up again on something we're going to see here in just a second. So the thing, so our faith does not save, but the object of our faith saves. I heard it put well, too, at one point, that if you ever, if you ever wonder what this is like, this, this distinction of faith saving or the object of our faith saving, think about it like this. It's like a mother holding her child, walking along. Now, when you look at the child being held by the mother, do you look at the child and think, 
man, that child's really holding on tight to that mom. Mm-hmm. If, if, if the child let go, she'll probably fall. What happens? The, child, the mother's walking along with the child. The child lets go. What happens? The child doesn't fall. Why does the child not fall? Because it's actually the mother's holding on to the child, not the ability of the child to hold on to the mother. Our faith does not save, but the object of our faith saves. Okay, so I want us to see, finally, this is where we're ending, the grounds of our justification. The ground, the grounds of our justification. And he says in verse 25, whom God, now note, just jump back to verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, there's the bad news again, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So now he's going to describe that, just, or that, uh, that redemption. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. All human sin, up until this point, actually if you jump down to even verse, the next verse, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. I always heard people ask and wonder, and I've asked for a long time and wondered, how were people of old saved? Like, how was Noah saved? Have you ever wondered that? I mean, obviously he built the ark. But, or like Abraham. How was Abraham saved? How was Moses saved? He didn't know Jesus' name. If you would have looked at them and been like, hey, trust Jesus, they would have looked at you and been like, who's Jesus? They didn't know who he was. But they trusted the promise. And in trusting the promise, we see here how God, how God made them right. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance or his divine tolerance, he had passed over former sins. I love what Jay Adams then says. He says, tolerance is, is God's forbearance, not forgetfulness or looking over of sin. Forbearance is not forgiveness. He says, though, what he's saying here and his point here is that all human sin prior to Christ was passed over in God's mercy, but then poured out upon the Son of God was the punishment that should come to them. So we can say, along with Scripture, how was Moses saved? In Christ. Because Christ bore Moses' punishment. How was Abraham saved? By faith. Which is why we see that faith is how the vehicle of salvation. He says, up in, uh, I love what um, oh, your, another commentator, he says, God postponed the full penalty due to the, in the old covenant, allowing sinners to stand before him without having provided an adequate satisfaction of the demands of his holiness. So this is how Old Testament saints were saved. And it's at this point I usually hear, people ask a question. I hope this is a question you're wondering or pondering in your mind. Why does God, at some point you've probably asked this, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Have you ever heard a question like that? I feel like that's my actually number one question I hear in rebuttal when I share the gospel with people. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Well, there's multiple things wrong with that question. The first is that we're good people. We are not good people. The question we need to ask is actually reframe the other direction. Why would a good, holy, merciful, perfect God allow sinners? Why did he not strike me dead last night? 
We never ask that question, do we? Why did he not ask me, and why did he not strike me dead? We should ask, or we shouldn't ask, how can God justly punish human beings? We need to ask, how can God justly forgive anyone when we deserve death? So we see, notice again in verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now that word propitiation is just a big word for wrath-bearing sacrifice. We just sang it in Rock of Ages. He's the wrath-bearing sacrifice that makes us pure. Both elements are right there. Christ bore our just penalty for sin. Christ bore our just penalty for sin whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And he says this was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. This was, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith. And I actually love some translations actually translate that word propitiation as literally mercy seat which was the place in the Old Testament that was used that people brought sacrifices for sin. This is the place where the wrath of God was turned away for me and you. Let me ask you a question then, very simply. If you're a Christian sitting here today and you're, you're trusting in the work of Jesus Christ, if Jesus has soaked up the wrath of God toward you, how would your life look different? If you lived from every day to every day knowing that the wrath of God, the freight train of sin, of of judgment against sin, has been absorbed, how would your life look different? Would you approach Him differently when you know you have sinned? Would you view yourself differently? The gospel is the only way we can view ourselves rightly and not become self-worshippers. I want to say that one more time. The gospel is the only way we can view ourselves, see ourselves, see God rightly, because in it we don't diminish sin, because sin was punished in Christ. And we also see where our righteousness comes from, both happening at the same time. Listen to Jesus' words then. If Christ has soaked up the wrath of God completely for you by, by His redemption, then come to him. Listen to what he says. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So Christ bore our just penalty for sin. Secondly, God justifies sinners through faith in Christ. It was to show, verse verse 26, again, notice what he says. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. I love what, um, I think it was Calvin said, he said, in Christ, God can uphold his own standard. He can be just, but he can also declare sinners to be righteous. And so I'm going to ask you a question very simply. What are you clinging to today to justify you? 
I'm afraid that oftentimes, even in evangelical churches, we're almost more like the sloth. <laughs> I don't think I've, maybe I've told this story before. I always tell our college students this one. There was, a, there was a fake fact that went around one of our college ministries at one point that there were more sloths in a given year that died because they held on to their own arm and then let go, thinking it was a branch, and then let go of the other one. And I, I love that illustration because it's a sloth who's actually holding on to a branch but then sees his arm as a branch, holds on to it, and then lets go, thinking he's holding on to a branch. Now, that's not a f- true fact. No, sloths don't typically die like that. But it's funny because I think that's actually what faith can become for many Christians. Rather than holding on to Christ, what they hold on to is their own faith. And then they let go of Christ and wonder why they've fallen from the tree. Brothers and sisters, what we're clinging to is what is justifying us. I love what one of the old, old confessions said. It said, and therefore we cling to this foundation, which is Christ, which is firm forever, giving all glory to God, humbling ourselves, recognizing ourselves as we are, not claiming a thing for ourselves or our merits, and leaning and resting on the sole obedience of Christ crucified, which is ours when we believe in him. Now notice what they said next. That is enough to cover all our sins and to make us confident, freeing the conscience from the fear, dread, and terror of God's approach without doing what our first parents, Adam and Eve, did, who trembled as they covered themselves with fig leaves. So I'll ask you again, what are you justifying yourself with? Is it the self-help of our generation that wants to say, you're good, just, just continue to dull that, that feeling of guilt you have, just dull it? Or is it self-improvement of just try harder, do better? Or is it self-condemnation? Here's how you'll know. The next time you find yourself justifying yourself to someone else or feeling condemnation, what do you say? What do you cling to? I love what Ed Welsh says. He says, guilt coupled with a satanic accusation or legalistic self-effort is death. But guilt, coupled with the one-time sacrifice of Christ on our behalf, and guilt coupled with daily confession and foot washing, John 13.10, is fullness of life. So don't run from the feelings of guilt. Run to Christ. Run to Christ. Don't run to the, to, the, to the safe haven, supposedly, of regret that says, if I had only done this, if I should have done that. We're changing the standard to alleviate the guilt. No, no, no. Take a tune like Psalm 51. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. It's through faith alone that sinners are declared righteous with the alien righteousness of Christ accomplished in the death of Christ. I'm going I'm to give an example just to close us. So remember that courtroom we were talking about at the beginning. Here we are on the front pew, the proverbial world, who has been silenced. Sitting, hearing the guilty, 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 guilty. And the beauty of the gospel is that God himself takes off his robe, and what he does, this is the beauty and the splendor of Christ. The judge himself takes off his robe, 
and bears our penalty for us and now offers all who stand condemned come to me by faith. So the question is, will you come? Will you come to Christ? It's through faith alone that sinners are declared righteous with the alien, outside of us, righteousness of Christ, accomplished in the death of Christ. So I want to give us just a minute to just ponder what we've heard here today. Because what we've heard here today is the essence of salvation. Christ has bore our penalty. Are we trusting him? And maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, I, yeah, I've, I've trusted Christ a lot. Great. Come back to him. Again, afresh, anew. So just take a minute. I just want us to ponder what we've heard here today. And then we'll close. Ask a couple questions for us to reflect as we're sitting here and pondering what we've heard from God's word. If you believe the wrath of God has been absolved in Christ, what are you clinging to still trying to self-justify yourself? Take just a second and confess that here before the Lord. Take just a second and confess anything here before the Lord that you have used this week as your own source of self-justification. Whether it be parenting, whether it be our job, our money, whatever we're finding security in. Take just a second and confess it before the Lord. God, you are so good. You say in your gospel that all those who come to you by faith, who cling to you, who let down their sin, who put their sin down and cling to Christ, that you will freely, abundantly, sufficiently declare them righteous with your righteousness. Lord, we will stand before you someday, not in our own strength, not in our own righteousness, but in the righteousness of Christ. What a, what a wonder, what a grace. Help us to stand upon that promise this week. Help us to live in light of that promise this week. Do this in us, we pray, Holy Spirit. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.